Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Let's talk a little C-suite conversation here. We can do that with the hotel business. Mark Hoplamazian joins us. He's a president and chief executive officer of Hyatt Hotels, uh, joining us uh, via Zoom. Uh, hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. I, I'm looking at your stock here, 52-week high. Uh, for those that don't know, H is the symbol. It's cool to get that one of those single-letter uh, symbols there. That's always pretty cool for us mm -hmm. Wall Street folks. It's got a market cap of $15.7 uh, Stock's up about three-tenths of 1% today. Mark, talk to us about your recent earnings and kind of what was the messaging you needed to get across to your shareholders? Uh, first of all, it's great to be back with you all, and thanks for having me. Um, I think the the, the uh, clear message was really centered around the fact that the transformation of the company to an uh, asset lighter platform uh, has now shown up in the numbers in a very material way. Uh, we had the highest free cash flow that in the company's history. Um, we also had um, the mix of our asset light earnings to our total earnings went up to 76 percent. Uh, five years ago, that was uh, in the in the mid 40s. Hey, Mark, could so, you describe for us what it, what your asset light strategy is? Is that relying more on franchisees? Yeah, so um, it's not really. I wouldn't call it an asset light strategy. I would call it an asset light program where okay. we were selling down. Real, we had we had two major drivers of our of our of our earnings. One was from real estate that we own, hotels. Yep. And the other was from management and franchising uh, hotels across the world. We're primarily a management business, not a franchise business, but um, that those are the two businesses. So uh, as we sell down uh, real estate, we uh, the, the the proportion that's coming from real estate sourced earnings has been dropping. We've concurrently reinvested in buying new platforms and new brands over the last five years, and that has driven up our management and franchising fees at the same time. So the mix has ch shifted to uh, much more in the management and franchise fee driven business, which is very low capital intensivity um, and high margin and high free cash flow conversion. So that was the, probably the key message. The other thing that we did is we simplified our financial presentation because we have a business 
that's a subscription model membership business called Unlimited Vacation Club. And we sold the majority interest in that business to yeah. a third party, which helped us simplify how we report our earnings. And that was very well received by um, investors. So Mark, that's you in the C-suite managing all of that. What about the demand side um, of the business? What kind of pricing power do you have per room? And what's the demand situation like? Actually, demand, so we, we think about three different demand uh, drivers. One is leisure, which has been the leader of the recovery uh, through post-COVID period. Uh, we think about group business, which is big meetings and, and uh, conventions and things like that. And we also have business travel, individual business travel. All three are showing signs of great um, uh, momentum and positive outlook. So uh, starting with leisure, in the first quarter of this year, our pace, meaning our bookings, are up 11% for our all-inclusive resorts in the Caribbean and and um, and also up for uh, our, uh, our resorts in the Americas. Um, but leisure travel has been uh, really, really solid. In China, we had a record year for Lunar New Year. Uh, the spending amongst uh, Chinese, both inside of China and uh, to other destinations in Asia was at an all-time high. So that's leisure. In group, uh, our pace into this year, that is forward bookings are up 8%. Uh, and so we're, we're looking at another solid year of growth, of, of growth in meetings. And I think corporations are increasingly resolved to make sure that they prioritize those meetings. Hmm. And then on business transient, the U.S. is lagging, but uh, the overall uh, business transient category demand around the world is about 7% to the low where it was uh, pre-pandemic. So we're getting closer and closer to being at parity. Europe is fully recovered and then some. China is fully recovered and then some. The United States is still lagging. So, but it's, and we're seeing signs of, of positive signs of business transient travel uh, increasing. So I would say across all three major categories, um, we're seeing positive trends into 24. Mark, could you talk to us about M&A and, and, and kind of growth via acquisition? How does that figure into your growth plans? What are you guys messaging to the street about your willingness to engage in M&A? Because I know you had a buyout recently of the Apple Leisure Group. I want to see kind of right. what your appetite is going forward. Yeah. So. Um, over the past five years, we've we've invested about $3.8 billion in acquisitions, um, the biggest one being Apple Leisure Group at $2.7 billion. And um, it's been tremendously beneficial to us because we've been able to expand our customer base in the most uh, in the highest growth and most relevant to us uh, categories, which is leisure, lifestyle, and luxury. And so we've really done this in a very deliberate way to move the company in that direction. Uh, in the fourth quarter, I think we had 57% of our total rooms revenue around the world was leisure focused, which is up 20 points mm. from the mid 30s to the mid 50s uh, pre-pandemic till now. So the, the mix in the company has tr tremendously shifted, um, but they've also been very profitable and high value acquisitions. Mm -hmm. The fees per room that we are earning today are materially higher than they were five years ago before we made these acquisitions and 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 evolved the company, even as we have grown our our um, select service brands. So we're we are expanding in lower price points, but our overall fee growth per room has been growing. Yeah, um, which is really I think um, 
part of the equation of actually driving uh, shareholder value on an accelerated basis. In hey, terms Mark. of our outlook, I think there, there will be more opportunities for M&A in the future, but probably smaller scale. Mark, Paul and I talked about the story yesterday um, for the Journal reported that hotel parking fees are spiking <laughs> because of the fact that, you, you know, you guys that own hotels have to pay more in rent. Uh, interest rates have increased. Maybe there's a demand issue in certain pockets. You got to increase uh, prices where you can. Talk to me about how expensive it is to run your business. Like where are costs coming down? Where are costs going up? You know, I think the, the primary, look, first of all, uh, let's start with the biggest cost category, which is people yeah. at our hotels. And in 2021, um, non-union markets, which is primarily in the South, the Sun Belt, the smile of the United States, I think our, our, our wage, wage rates went up by 20% uh, over the course of that year. And uh, that started to mitigate or ameliorate in 2022 and 2023. Um, but we, we experienced a massively acute um, situation in terms of supply of labor, that's really, that's evened out. We were in the mid-teens level. So that's evened out in that, because we also talked about, didn't we, Paul, about uh, cleaning services, yeah, like not staffing, housekeeping, because <laughs> you just can't find the workers. So do you feel like you're at the right spot? Um, I would say that there are pockets where we still have shortages. And I think part of that um, has to do with um, the, the nature of the workforce at this point. So we've got um, uh, a, a lot of the byproduct of not having a really um, advanced uh, immigration policy in the in the United States and H2B visa program is that for at, at times, especially over the summer where you have peak, peak demand, um, we don't have the right type type of labor that's willing to take those jobs and uh, and be happy to start their careers in those jobs. Um, so I think this they go together. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the H two B people that come in on an H two B visa, which is a temporary work visa, they come and they leave, um, or uh, the incidence of of immigration that allows us to hire people who are coming into the into the workforce in the United States for the first time has been has been under some pressure. Now, having said that, overall, our vacancy rates have gone from mid-teens to, to mid-single digits, so down 10 points, which is extraordinary, yep. and that's over the last 18 months. Um, so we are having a better time finding labor, but there are definitely pockets of, of, of right. constraints still. Yep, we hear that from a lot of folks in the service business. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Mark Hoplamazian, he's the president and chief executive officer at Hyatt Hotels, joining us uh, from Chicago, Illinois, via Zoom. The company stock, H is the ticker, all-time high today. So how about that? They had some pretty solid numbers uh, hmm. recovering from the pandemic, like we see a lot of other uh, entertainment and leisure spaces. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, MA Go in the terminal. Then I click on Time Series, and I go out 10 years, and I just look at the graph of M&A activity, both in terms of dollar volume and number of deals. And man, it really since like, I don't know, 
mid-2022, there's been nothing going on in the M&A world. My M&A banker buddies, I don't know what they're living on these days. But let's check and see where we are on the M&A space, kind of where we can be going from here. I guess that's what happens when rates go up 500 basis points. Ted Smith joins us. He's co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Ted, M&A activity, it's been a little fallow over the last, I don't know, 18 months or so. What are you guys seeing out there in terms of activity? We're starting to finally see a little bit of a thaw out there, Paul. I want to, I want to be careful not to suggest that it's getting overcooked anytime soon, but starting to see the number of deals both uh, and the, the quality of deals start to come back. Strategic acquirers are saying they've kind of come out of their funk. They're ready to do things again where they hadn't been to your point for the last 12 to 18 months. And private equity firms, which in technology, where we apply our trade, are so important, uh, have a lot of capital to put to work. Um, so they're anxious to. to it, was get it back just to interest it. rates going up that everybody just stepped back, or is it global macro? What kind of caused people to, to step back here? Because when I think about MA, I think I have to have a board and a C suite that has confidence in their business to go out and make that kind of investment. Right. So on the strategic side, I think it was more macro. It was okay. like, we don't know enough about where our business is going right now that we can take a risk on another business. Uh, I think in private equity land, it was definitely at least in part by interest rates. And it was also the fact that because even into, to your point in early 2022, there hadn't been a lot of capital returned to their limited partners. And so for every dollar that they're investing, they're also thinking, should I be giving that back to my limiteds? And so there's been a lot of tension in, in that part of the, of the world. So I know tech might be your, your space, but just uh, I'm, I'm an energy person. So I'm really interested in what's happening with uh, Exxon and CNUC um, trying to get in the middle of the deal between um, uh, Chevron and, and Hess. And the broad question is like, are we going to see weird ter territorial fights like this in different sectors where like one big company suing to stop another big company from buying a smaller company? Like, is that normal? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's normal, but it's certainly not unheard of. Okay. Alex, and, and I think uh, we think, and again, in tech, we see a lot of semi-normal or even abnormal potential buyers who see buying into the tech landscape as being something that will help increase their growth, increase their margins, put them into exposure of a sector that they previously had not been. Um, so I think we'll see some more of that in tech, but more generally to your question, I'm certainly no expert on the energy sector, but I think this is an environment where if you see that smaller company that can really make a difference in your business and accelerate inorganic growth, you're, buyers are not afraid to mix it up at this point because they've, they've been on the sidelines for a while and they need to get back in. If I go to Sand Hill Road with a really good idea, can I find any money? Will they, will they invest in my company? They will. Uh, valuations are obviously down from the peak in 2021. Um, you're going to get asked a lot of questions about what's your AI strategy. Okay. Uh, you know, where, <laughs> yeah, where are exactly. you going? They got to show something for it, right? Exactly. Where are you going from here? The capital is available, uh, but it is certainly uh, more limited than it was two years ago and before that. Um, investors are being much more diligent about what they're willing to put capital to work in. And again, I, AI is obviously hot. That's blinding glimpse of the obvious for your audience. Yep. Um, but what's different, I think, and I compare this because I've been doing this for a long time. I compare this to the, you know, the dot-com yep. era. Investors got to the point really quickly where it wasn't just about it's AI, it's what's the defensible business model, what's the real enterprise use case, and how are you going to make money with it? That came so much faster okay. with AI than it did in the dot-com era, and that's what you're seeing on Sand Hill Road now. Show me a full business plan that's going to make mm -hmm. money. Well, well, how are valuations? Do you think that we're getting overpaid? Are things getting overpaid uh, to be bought? Like, or How hard is it to come to price? 
Um, better than it was in 20, late 22 and 23, where, where we okay. had quite a bit of disparity, and that was one of the reasons for not getting a, a lot of M&A done. Was have that the buyers come dispar- down, or have the seller, like, yeah, have the buyers come down, the seller's gone up, or vice versa? Some, some of both. I do think that, the, obviously, the market is, has improved overall uh, over the course of late 23 and 24, so valuations have ticked up off of their lows. But I also think seller expectations have tempered a bit. We've been in this valuation, this down, more down valuation environment now for almost two years, and, and eventually you have to realize this is the new normal. Yeah, I think that the, I guess the question I was asking a lot of IPO bankers is when is that stigma of, you know, a down round, when is that going to kind of ease up off the marketplace? Because I felt like I didn't want to be one of the first people to do an IPO at a down round or do, right. the, do a down round in the private market. So, but it maybe more deals we get done, maybe that, that, that happens. So on the M&A space here, I mean, I, what are the, how, are, how are you targeting your business? What's your target sheet look like? Um, what type of company are you calling on? So we focus on late stage private companies and public companies. Uh, we will represent either buyers or sellers. Uh, that's a little different than other boutiques who tend to focus only on sellers. Uh, we think it's important to be able to do both. Um, but opportunities uh, in the hundred million of enterprise value all the way up to a billion and well beyond is where we, where we do our work. Mm-hmm. Um, might characterize that as middle market, um, but there's a, that's where, you know, uh, under the M&A curve, that's where the greatest amount of area is. So there's a lot to do there. Um, we focus mostly on enterprise technologies. So again, I mentioned the enterprise use case for AI. A lot of our companies are, then, are selling to big companies themselves, saying, yep. Here, here's how I can make you more efficient, how I can help you drive more revenue. Mm-hmm. That's where we spend most of our time, and there's a, there's a lot of great software companies in there. Well, okay, I was going to say software. I feel like there are a gazillion software companies. Like, this one reports, this one reports. Like, look at Snowflake. I have no idea the difference as, as like a general market person. Like, are we right. going to have to see big consolidation within that? Um, I think we will see more consolidation. I'm not sure it's going to be big to big. Uh, okay. I think you're going to continue to see the larger players acquire small and medium-sized companies on a relative basis to their own market caps. Um, and that's, you know, certainly that's what we're counting on. We don't think, uh, because you touched on it, Paul, we don't think we're going to see a surge in IPO activity. It'll be busier this year than it was last year, but that's a very low bar, obviously. Ultimately, 95-plus percent of venture-backed companies that get to an exit get to an exit through M&A. And that's, that's been true for literally decades. One of the things that's new, uh, at least since I was on the street, was this whole private credit market. Mm, How does that impact your business, the technology industry? Because I would guess it's just another form of capital for your companies. That's right. So um, it's it's been a boom for our business. We brought in a team led by Mike Meyer, uh, partner um, who owns our capital markets business and actually is now our CEO. He's done a great job with that. That's an almost two trillion dollar asset class in private credit today. Wow. And. It's also available to technology companies earlier than it ever has been before. So to your point, we can go to our clients and say, let's talk about your capital needs, the cost of capital that you're looking for, the flexibility you're looking for, and let's look across the entire debt equity spectrum and find a solution for you. And you can go to the private credit markets and find that tailored solution much easier than you can in the public markets. Um, What other ways are we financing deals here? Again, most of the large acquirers are going to finance it largely off their balance sheet. It, okay. So, I mean, obviously, if it becomes a really large deal, you might see the bigger companies go into the market. Um, but to the point that Paul made earlier, right, that's a lot more expensive now. And so they'd prefer not to do that if they don't have to. Um, occasionally, we're seeing stock for stock deals. Those used to be uh, de rigueur, not so much anymore uh, mm-hmm. amongst the, the larger buyers. Um, but mostly, this is still a cash buyer's market. Um, and so if you don't have enough cash on, on hand, then you're going to have to go out and find it. And I think we'll start to see um, 
a return to equity-based financing, convertible-based financing. Again, a lot of the use of the private credit market with its flexibility will will back some of this M&A that's going to happen this year. I'm guessing in your middle market size, you don't have to deal with regulators too much approving deals. But boy, across the industry, if I'm a big-ticket M&A banker, I, I got to make sure I got the right lawyers giving me the advice because I think the, the Department of Justice, the FTC, everybody's cracking down. It's true. And and we, we think of it in terms of to whom are we going to be selling this company? Because if you're one of the big seven, you're going to get scrutiny for almost yeah. every deal, right? Yep. Um, and so we watch for that as we uh, as we bring opportunities forward and think about what that might look like. But you're right; it's it's really that group. And let's face it; they have lived for a very long time yep. on asking for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> and I think they're going to continue that activity. But and it's, by the way, it's not just the DOJ here. We've seen a lot more yep. activity and scrutiny out of Europe, the UK in particular, and we think that's going to continue for a while. Yeah, the UK, they get Brexit, and then they realize, oh, we oh, can wait. have a seat at the table now. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, very good. All right, Ted, thanks so much for joining us once again. Ted Smith, he's a co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors, joining us live here on our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio, talking about the world of tech, the world of uh, deal making. Again, the past 18 months, just looking at my MA function on the Bloomberg terminal, uh, been much slower than maybe like the 10-year average. And I guess that can happen when rates go up uh, 500 basis. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. PCE. I, I kind of felt like it was a bit of a nothing burger. Like it, 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 it wasn't bad. It wasn't terrible. Um, and I'm really wondering if we actually learned anything uh, today on inflation. So good thing that Ira Jersey is here, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. Ira, did I learn anything today? Uh, we didn't learn a whole lot from the, the PC report on inflation. I mean, obviously, the headline numbers were as expected. There were some details here and there that were kind of interesting. There were certainly, the downward revisions for December uh, turned a couple of heads here and there and, and helped contribute to the rally. Um, well, what I found really interesting, and I, I think something that people have been talking about this, uh, the, the personal income number being so hot today. So that was up 1%, which was well above expectations. And that was driven in large part by two factors. One was massive increase in government spending. So basically, Social Security payments in particular were increased a lot in January. Part of that was a, a, a cost of living adjustment. Um, so that was up 3.5% in one month. That's uh, 
you know, that's massive and the most that we've had in a year. Uh, and the other was actually dividend payments. So dividend payments actually contributed about $75 billion to personal income uh, in annual, that's an annualized rate in the in January, and that's a pretty big move. Do, normally, it's significantly less than that every month. So, so, so take that with a little bit of a grain of salt too. And I think the market looked through that, and that's why uh, Treasuries have rallied a little bit since the uh, uh, since those data came out. So, Ira, would it be bad form to give the Federal Reserve a little pat on the back here in terms of their ability to bring inflation down? Well, maybe it might be a little bit early for that. You know, when you still have 2.8% core inflation on a PC weighted basis, that's not at their target yet. But certainly, you know, anything sub 3% is is better than 5% for sure. Um, but but when you look at some of the details, it, there it, there still are pockets of inflation that are very hot, and they're in sectors that aren't particularly interest rate sensitive, right? So there there are sectors like uh, like uh, services, excluding housing, and if you you consider those types of of, of uh, services, it's going to be hard for inflation to keep coming down. Um, so, so the the Fed obviously has tightened uh, uh, monetary policy quite a lot. There's certainly um, certainly some room maybe for inflation to continue to fall. Um, so, you know, we're going to continue to have this debate: is will the Federal Reserve cut interest rates before mid-year? Um, if they don't cut by June, then are they going to be able to cut because of the election cycle? Mm -hmm. And you know, do they want to get in front of that? So, um, so the, that debate is going to continue right up until the May and, and June meetings, I think. Uh, certainly into the June meeting if they don't cut in May. Um, so, so you know, th that's why you're going to have these gyrations, but they're going to be probably bounded, where you're going to see two-year yields go from you know 450 to five percent and probably hover in that area depending on what the market's expectation for the Fed's next move is. Well, I wondered if we learned anything about the reaction function of the market, because it looks like what we learned is that we're going to sell the rumor, buy the news this time around. Is that fair to say? Well, I, the selling really came because European rates were selling off overnight, and it, it, you know, so it was just a global rate sell-off a little bit. Uh, but the rally back, I think that th there was, uh, it was pretty clear that some people were short and thinking, hey, if we get a, you know, 0.4 print on headline inflation, then that could be mean that we get meaningfully higher treasury yields. Um, with that not happening, um, I think that's the reason why you had that pullback. There was a little bit of a relief rally there. Uh, in terms of the uh, um, in, in terms of the market reaction, so so you know we knew that they were, that inflation was going to kind of be within the range that it was just because PC doesn't diverge that much directionally from CPI, so so the forecasts were obviously reasonably good uh, going into some of these numbers. All right, what do we look? Ford next. What's the market now looking forward yeah, to? Do we just like snooze until May or something? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going to be a snooze fest. I mean, we our, our duration scorecard that we put out this morning and uh, basically saying, should you position long, short, or neutral, uh, the tr uh, the Bloomberg Treasury Index uh, says you should be neutral because it's very, uh, it, things are, there's nothing particularly rich or cheap about the market given the incoming data that we've received. Um, but next week's data, it could be market moving, right? ISM new orders uh, and the ISM uh, manufacturing report that we get next week, that is often market moving, plus we have payrolls coming up, right? So um, in order to get the, the Federal Reserve to think that they're going to cut early and aggressively, you really need to have the employment situation deteriorate much more than it has. Um, so, so that's one reason why that will continue to be a key focus report for the market.
Uh, lots of people had the steepeners on. Then there was like, oh gosh, the steepeners didn't make me money. I got to take that off. And then it was like, now we're going to stay with the steepeners. What do I do with the steepener? Can somebody define steepener <laughs> for this equity person? Oh, okay. So yeah. let, let me try as like okay. the layman person. Okay. okay? Uh, it basically means when long end yields go higher than short end yields. Okay. And, and the idea is the Fed's going to cut. So you're going to buy the front end and then yields in the back end go up. Ira, am I right? Did I pass? Uh, so that is a that is a bear steepener. A bull steepener would be if, say, oh, front end yields rallied a lot and yields went down, uh, and, and long-term yields just went down slower or didn't move at all. So uh, so you can get a steepener either bull or bear. But basically, it's it's that long-term yields don't move as much as, uh, or, or, or uh, stay higher than front end yields do. That That's basically the, um, the, the definition of a steepener. Yeah, you know, the, a lot of people thought that there would be a bull steepener because they were expecting, you know, we were, th just think about it, a month ago we were thinking that the Federal Reserve, the market was priced for the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates by 1.5% this year. So that's one reason why a lot of people were in those steepeners because they thought the two-year yields, instead of being a 4.7%, they'd have a three-handle now. And they don't, and and so so that's one reason why you've continued to see the curve kind of re-invert a little bit here. Um, I, I don't know where we are at the moment, but probably 39 or 40 basis points inverted between the two-year and the 10-year. Um, I, I, you know, we've been we've had the call for quite a while that we thought that the curve would remain inverted for most, if not all, of this year, and certainly the first half. Um, and that seems to be playing out pretty well. And and, and that was predicated on. Um, on our view that the Fed wouldn't cut more than three times this year, and, and now now we're priced for three cuts. So yeah. you know we have to reevaluate re that call right now. Uh, you know based on the incoming data, obviously. Thirty-nine basis points is where we are. So basically, what we just learned, Paul, is that Ira's right. He's always right. I mean, Ira said the stuff. He's been saying always. this since I don't know last summer. Yep. And no one was listening, and now we're listening. Who and hired the market's him? Up. Who yeah. hired him? That's all. Oh, oh, I know this, Paul. Very good, hey, Ira. <laughs> I mean. What I mean, it's interesting here. What it, is it? May or June? Do we care whether it's May or June when they start cutting rates? Mm -hmm. I feel like they got to do it before we get too much into the election season. But I don't know. Yeah, big picture, it really doesn't matter. You know, it matters to people who are trading June, who are trading, uh, you know, what, what we call, uh, you know, very short-term interest rate uh, contracts, that people who are in money market instruments like T-bills, they care whether it's May or June, right, because there's some incremental uh, few basis points of pickup that you can get depending on what they do. Um, but, you know, big picture, you don't care. 10-year yields don't really care. Two-year yields do care. Um, so if, if they go, you know, the, I think the big challenge is if they don't go by June, what is their, what is their propensity to, to go, move in July or, or September right around the, the uh, political party conventions and then obviously in the middle of the election season? Um, you know, we don't have a, a lot of uh, experience with this because there's only a presidential election every four years. But at least to date, the Federal Reserve has never started a new activity, whether it's hiking or cutting, in the middle of an election season. Um, they've continued policies that they uh, that they started prior to to an election uh, period, but they've never you know they've never started it say to September before an election. Um, but you know, so so that's one reason why like if one reason why I think they it would behoove them if they're thinking about cutting at all, they should just cut one time and then they can skip a few meetings. So. 
A, an outcome that would not surprise me at all is if the Federal Reserve were to cut in June and then wait to cut again until after the election. Mm -hmm. um, and then if they have to because the economy deteriorates meaningfully, then they can cut again in July or September and just say, well, there's a continuation of the policy that we started a couple of months ago because you know the unemployment rate's gone up and inflation's come down, like wh whatever, uh, whatever reasons that they espouse for their initial cut. You know what, um, we had Bruce Richards on a marathon asset management yesterday on television and he called that the two-step. Tuesday. Yeah, which I was like, okay, I kind of get that, right? Like, you move a little, and then you pause, and you move a little, and then you pause. <laughs> hey, Ira, thanks a lot, Ira Jersey. Uh, he is Chief U.S. Rate Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. He lost me after that, like, two-step. I don't know where you go after the two-step, but, you know. Right. But that idea, you move a little, and then you hold. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, May or June, I don't think, again, as Ira said, I don't think the market, generally speaking, cares that much. I'm, You know, as an equity investor, having the anticipation of rate cuts is as good as having them, in my opinion. Just in terms right. Of the yeah. And, and they actually talk about that in terms of the lag of monetary policy, that if it's just the expectation of stuff yep. that changes what the lag of monetary policy actually is, because by the time you feel it, you're already anticipating uh, those cuts. That being said, I'd like to refinance the mortgage. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It was interesting to get the earnings out yesterday from Paramount because... It, it, there was a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, right? You had a 15% decline in TV advertising, so that feels like that's not great. But then streaming subscribers went up. I was yep. one of those people, so you're really? welcome, Paramount. Oh, very it, good. It's my weird addiction I have to Survivor. I know, which is <laughs> because I was paying 30 like, years I know. <laughs> too late, but <laughs> I know. okay. I'm Better paying like 25 What's the prize money up to on Survivor It's now. still a million. They didn't adjust what? to inflation. But one time it was $2 million when they did Survivor All-Stars. But that was back uh, 2020, 2019. Okay. But point is, I was paying 25 bucks a season, so I just did the Paramount Plus thing. But I think I'm going to add more because the ads are just so annoying. Really? Yeah, and I'm okay. going to be one of those people that they love. Yes. Anyway, let's go to Gita, because she knows much more than I do on this. Gita Ranganathan, she covers uh, U.S. media. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst. Hey, Gita, so there was like a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. What's my broader takeaway from that? Yes, you're absolutely right, Alex. Uh, streaming was definitely uh, a, a key positive, and you're absolutely right in terms of the subscriber numbers. Those came in slightly ahead of estimates. Uh, the bigger positive was the ARPU trends. Uh, so remember, Wall Street has now kind of shifted its focus away from subscri just subscriber growth to revenue growth as well as profitability. And they kind of scored pretty well on the revenue uh, growth metrics as well. So ARPU increased about 30% through the year, uh, and that's on the back of a price increase. Uh, and then the next thing, of course, to look at was profitability and their losses narrowed. So they're obviously taking a step in the right direction. I think what investors are kind of really cheering, though, is that they, they did articulate some kind of strategy uh, to kind of get to profitability. And they, they outlined a, a time frame uh, as well. So 2025 is when they're expecting Paramount Plus profitability, which is definitely, I think, good news. The question is, uh, I'm not sure whether it's enough. Yep. Mm. I mean, the stock is up 4.3% today. That's the good news. The bad news Less is bad. it's down 22% year to date, and it's down about 45% over the last year. And, Geetha, before we move forward here, we have a big discussion internally here in the studio. Do you prefer the pronunciation of your first name, Geetha, T-H, or Geeta with a T? 
It's it's uh, T H. So Tita. Boom! Oh. Told you guys. Oh, John Tucker. Thank you for schooling us. <laughs> I thought us. you told me like years ago. I was forgetting. Well, see, I've known Keith and I have worked together for 15 years. You know, and she just doesn't even bother to correct me anymore. So I, I figured what you know if it's I'm going to just stick with it. Thank you for validating us. What was the interview with Paul like? Was it intimidating when he interviewed you for your job? I begged Keith to join me. I begged Geetha to join me. She did, and it was the best thing we ever did. So, Geetha, I guess the bigger picture here with Paramount is what does the ownership here uh, want to do with the company? And it appears by all accounts that they're just not big enough to compete against some of these big technology companies, some of these big media companies like a Netflix, like a Disney. And, boy, there's a lot of speculation around Paramount. Did they address that at all? They didn't. I mean, the one thing, though, that, you know, I think Bob Backish got out of the way was they are going to do something that is good for all shareholders. He kind of underlined <laughs> that because there has been this constant, uh, you know, question about whether, you know, Sherry Redstone is kind of just going to cash out and leave everybody else hanging. Uh, and so he he wanted to, you know, kind of get that out of the way. Uh, but again, I, I, you know, I think the focus is going to come, you know, the M&A options, Paul, uh, and we've discussed this, seem to be shrinking at this point. You know, Warner Brothers Discovery obviously said they're no longer interested. Uh, other firms have kind of come, taken a look. Apollo being one of them said not interested. The only interested party right now is Skydance, uh, controlled by David Ellison. But again, he, he's really not, there's really no natural buyer for all of the assets. Uh, he's not interested in controlling some TV networks. He's only really looking at the studio. So again, I'm not sure that Paramount Management necessarily wants to do kind of a part mm -hmm. uh, parts sale here. Um, so I think they're going to kind of go back and focus on fundamentals. I think some of that M those the unrealistic M&A expectations are kind of going to subside a little bit. We're going to go back to fundamentals, I think, for the time being. Well, to that point, then, did did they buy themselves some time? Because I could make an argument that, OK, well, the slowing in ad sales, maybe that's an industry-wide thing. OK, other players are getting hit. They did add some streaming, uh, streaming subscribers, so they, they have some time now that they might not have had 24 hours ago. Is that a real statement or no? I think so. I definitely think so, because with, with streaming, what we're going to see is we're going to see some sustained momentum in those ARPU increases. So they're doing more, uh, you know, international price increases. They've kind of integrated Showtime into Paramount. And with that, they've been able to take some price increases. So we're going to kind of see that uh, play out to pretty much a, a, most of 2024. The question is what happens after 2024, but they definitely have bought themselves some time. So what is the, the outlook for the studio here, Geetha? Studio, unfortunately, for 2024 looks really, really bleak. So the big movie, of course, that everybody was kind of looking at was Mission Impossible. That's been pushed out to 2025. We do have a few movies here and there. I mean, you have Quiet Place that's coming out in June. There's obviously some anticipation building there. Uh, but again, in general, Paul, the box office outlook for 2024 is, is just pretty weak. Uh, and that's just because of all of those Hollywood strikes that's pushed out a lot of movies into 2025. It's kind of going to shave off, I think, at least $2 billion off, off the box office. But presumably we're going to look through that, right? I mean, presumably they're going to recoup that and they'll be pent up in 2025? That is the big question, right? Um, yes, we've seen kind of box office demand, you know, in general kind of come back. Uh, but it's still about 20% below pre-pandemic level. So the big question is, okay, when all of those big titles kind of hit the screens in 2025, are we kind of going to see a, a bigger resurgence? The jury is still out. I think, yes, it's definitely going to be better than 2024. Is it going to be as good as it was, uh, you know, in its heyday? I'm not so sure. So, Geetha, how about the, the CBS television network and the Viacom cable networks? Uh, you know, one point that was such a big part of this company here, 
Um, talk to us about the advertising, the television advertising market. What's kind of the forecast for the next several years? Is it a growing business? Is it a declining business? It's a melting ice cube, uh, oh, Paul, just like, you know, just, just like the, the whole pay TV ecosystem. Um, so, you know, this is this used to be back in the day about a 60 billion market. It's shrunk. It's going to probably hit about 45 billion by the end of next year. And really, you know, this is just kind of a progression of where all the eyeballs are moving. So they're moving away from the linear TV networks to streaming. And so we're seeing kind of those ad dollars follow those eyeballs and going from, you know, the, the, the TV uh, medium to what is now called connected TV, which is really all the streaming platforms. And, you know, you're using all your connected TV devices, the, the Roku's and the, the Google sticks and all of that to kind of watch television. And that's where all of the advertising is moving as well. Unfortunately, Paramount doesn't have too much of a presence there. Yes, they do have, you know, Pluto TV, which is their solution, but it's not going to be able to kind of offset the, the leakage that we're seeing in the television ecosystem. Uh, and that is really a problem for all of these media companies, for Paramount a little bit more so. But here's the thing. If they wind up just doing advertising on streaming, like, isn't it going to be eventually kind of shake out the same? So that has been kind of their whole spiel. I mean, of course, they're saying that, you know, they can reclaim some of those lost dollars. The problem is the digital ad space is getting really, really crowded as well. And so, you know, again, it depends on who has the most watch time. Netflix dominates. They have about two and a half hours of viewing time every day. Disney Plus is, you know, follows very closely. And now the biggest uh, blow really to all of these players has been Amazon because they just came out about a month ago and they've introduced advertising on their uh, you know, prime video service. And that is really kind of shaking up the whole digital ad market. So if you're a subscale player, chances are you're not going to really be able to make a dent even in the digital ad space. Mm. Wow, interesting. All right, Geetha, thanks so much uh, for joining us there. Geetha Nag Nagaraganathan, analyst on US media for Bloomberg Intelligence, Geetha Raganathan. Um, Joining us from the uh, headquarters of uh, Bloomberg Intelligence down in Princeton, New Jersey. Boy, I, I don't, you know, that melting ice cube, that's not good. Yeah, just, just that sentence wasn't good. Yeah, that's um, not good for them. And But I just don't know what they do. I don't know what the end game is here. Uh, what's funny is, uh, this is a total side note, but my daughter grew up without commercials because we never had linear TV. We, we had just like ah. Netflix, right? And, and now she's experiencing commercials because all these streaming players have commercials. And so now she like quotes all these. She's nine, by the way. So <laughs> she can quote all these commercials now. from and, and she like likes them and wants to be with them. And she rails against car commercials. Really? I don't know what that is. She's like, who needs all these cars? This is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't want to see this. So I feel like I'm going to have to pay up for the non-commercial ones so. now. Yeah, I, a lot of people do. A lot of people do. Um, well, it just shaves time too, right? And they're sure. only going to, that, and that, that block between segments is only going to get more and more, I'm yep. thinking. Yep, and and, uh, and if you're on <clears throat> broadcasting cable television, what are the advertisers? They're not the car companies. They're not Coca-Cola. They're healthcare. You need this drug for this oh, problem. And as this my drug. husband loves. He's like, I yeah. have all these problems. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to see this on TV. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Exactly. Uh, that's such a good point. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Another stock we're watching here is Hewlett Packard. So this is HPQ. This is the company that makes PCs and printers. Um, reported that stock is down by about 1%. It reported earnings that, quite frankly, just show that there's still a slowdown in the PC market. They seemed relatively more constructive in the back half, but still, I got some questions. There's no one else to bring to and talk to about it than is Wu Jin Ho, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. Wu Jin, what was your biggest takeaway here? Yeah, uh, look, uh, the first quarter results were pretty weak. Um, if you if you look at the first quarter PC numbers, uh, they fell below consensus expectations, and um, you know the 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 fact that they were able to maintain guidance on on the revenue side for PCs as well as the EPS side, uh, they're really hoping for that second half, as you were saying, Alex. And give us the the, the drivers here, Wooj, um, for that second half. What what has to happen? Well, there's a there's a couple of things, right? Um, you have a macro improvement and uh, better consumer dollars. You have the second half seasonality that's going to drive it up back to school for the consumer side. Uh, but there's also a big uh, Windows 11 upgrade cycle that's coming in, and which is supposed to be a tailwind. Um, but I do have some doubts uh, for for one big reason: corporate IT spending has been fairly weak. And um, that really needs to cooperate in the second half for um, uh, for the PC numbers to materialize for HP. Um, uh, do my homework for me. We have the CEO yeah. of HPQ tomorrow uh, oh. in the morning. Yeah, and we're going to run it on the yeah. closed show. What are the best questions to ask? Because I'm I'm really interested in kind of when they see the trough really materializing, how how long that trough actually may last. Yeah. So so I think we are getting closer to the trough, okay. right? I think next quarter. Um, is, is going to be the trough uh, in, in terms of a, a PC uh, revenue side. Uh, if, if we think about it uh, from, from this perspective, uh, you want to ask along the lines of why are they so bullish on the second half? Uh, if I do my, if, if looking at the back of the envelope math, uh, it looks like they need about 10% second half growth versus first half growth. Typically, it's about 5% second half growth versus uh, first half. So it's going to be well above seasonality. So some of those drivers may be, as they said on the call, is uh, higher pricing. So PC prices are going to come up, um, as 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 well as um, you know possibly possibly uh, some some timing on on the uh, uh, incremental contribution to to AI PCs. And I opened a Pandora mm. box, I believe. Because I'm just looking at the PGO function, which kind of breaks down kind of their revenue where it comes from, commercial. Uh, is a big part of their business. Talk to us about yep. the the buying cycle on, on the commercial side, the enterprise side, Wooj. Is it every two, three years? Is it predictable? And where are we? Yeah, so so um, we're actually on the beginning end, uh, uh, the beginning or the start of the PC uh, refresh cycle from 
the pre-COVID times, right? Uh, typical refresh cycles for PCs are uh, about four years, and then we get new ones. Now, um, th this this lies into my concern. Uh, if the PCs are running okay and the budgetary dollars are uh, the corporate dollars are still fairly tight, you know, I I, I would like to say that uh, they would like to hold on to those PCs for another six months to a year, that, and that would fall into fiscal 2025. The other thing that concerns me in, in terms of this particular PC cycle uh, is the, the emergence of AI PCs. Uh, we don't know- Wujin, uh, wait, real quick, yeah. what's an AI PC? Well, uh, an AI PC is a PC that has specific uh, artificial intelligence chips uh, provided by Intel or AMD and can run uh, a, uh, AI functionality. Uh, that's actually, there's a lot of hype uh, on AI PCs uh, starting from CES even last year. And uh, we're gonna start seeing the ramp up at the second half of this year uh, and uh, materialize even more in, in uh, 2025. So uh, my issue with the AI PC uh, ramp up cycle, I do think it's gonna materialize. It's just that there's no application ecosystem to help support it right now. Mm. And if there's gonna be buying decisions uh, coming up at the end of this year, I may wanna delay it a quarter or two to see what the AI PC can actually do. And, and do, is it right? Uh, does it fit into my uh, corporate workflow? That's interesting. So Wooch, I'm looking at the stock, absolutely unchanged on it over the past year. I look at the A&R functions, I got eight buys, eight holds, and three sells. The street, there's no conviction on this name here. When you talk to clients, what are they saying about it? Yeah, and, and it, sounds, it sounds about right, right? So, so the bulls are looking forward to that second half PC upgrade cycle. Uh, you have to look past 2024 uh, to get that PC upgrade cycle to happen. And, and it's going to happen in 25, right? Uh, re regardless, because uh, Windows is going to shut down Windows 10, Microsoft's gonna shut down Windows 10, and it's gonna really push that upgrade cycle regardless. Um, the, my main concern is is twofold, and, and I'm gonna step away from the PC uh, uh, segment for a moment here. That printer segment is a cash gal. It's a 20%, uh, 19 to 20% uh, operating margin uh, business, and they really can't sell the hardware. And if you can't sell the hardware, you're not gonna be able to sell the, the higher margin supplies. So over the long term, um, uh, the concern for me is, is that uh, diminishing hardware sales is going to impact the, the demand for supplies because no one's printing anymore, everyone's digitizing. And then it's gonna affect the long-term profitability. Interesting. I just wonder though, for the refresh cycle, like I, I hear you on the profitability part and the printer part, but on the refresh mm -hmm. cycle, I mean, how dependent do you think we'll actually be on that? I'm still waiting for the iPhone super cycle that I've been hearing <laughs> about since 2016. Yeah, well, I want you to think about it this way, uh, Alex. Um, we came off of a terrible, terrible uh, 2023 from, from a univolume perspective, right? And, and we're probably still going to be uh, bouncing along historic lows from univolumes. And, um, you know, people have not been upgrading their PCs and laptops uh, for the last two, three years since the beginning of COVID. So we're starting to get some tired PCs out there. Uh, and again, more importantly for the corporate side, we have the Windows 11 uh, uh, forced upgrade, and that is going to force that upgrade cycle. Now, now to, to, um, to give you a, a data point, um, you know, normalized 
uh, normalized volumes on an annual basis is roughly around 260 to 270 million PCs. And, and we're probably going to be running around 262 million for this year. Uh, so we're still below uh, uh, average trend. And, and um, I think there's scope in 25 that we are going to get above 265 uh, million units. So the, and, and HP is going to benefit from that as well. All right, Wooj, thanks a lot. Wooj Jin Ho, a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.